evening will begin in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Lord, when we look at a passage like this, culturally speaking, it is far removed from where we're at. And so, Lord, we ask and we pray that you would take a text like this and that you would use this to help us understand you better, to know you better, to feel your heart and understand why it is that a perfection is necessary, Lord. So lead us, teach us, help us all by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Recently, I joined a club. Now, I went out looking to join this club. It's a rotary club. That means that you're a business person in and about town and that you want to help better your community. Great, great club. Very altruistic. Um, Not my natural bent, I'll be perfectly honest to admit. Although I don't mind doing the networking kind of thing, I do like just having friends and talking with people. So it's kind of a little bit of that mixed with business. But I joined this club because now working at the place that I do up in paradise, I really wanted to get to know the community. I wanted to be a part of that particular community since I lived down here in Chico. And this is a good way to do that. However, with this particular club, you don't just like go on their website and do the little email form and it pitches you back. Yeah, you're good to go. Oh, no, 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 Raul. No. There's all kinds of hoops you have to jump through. First of all, you have to be invited. That's a head scratcher. How does Pat get himself invited to be a part of this group? I got to go meet somebody in the group, right? I have to go meet them. I have to introduce myself. I have to be pleasant enough that they're willing to say, hey, you should be a part of our group, right? It's this little bit of a chess match going on here. And everybody knows it. Everybody's aware of it. It's not like I'm doing something nobody else has ever done. 
But I need this person, this, ah, what's the right word? Intermediary between me and the club, right? The club exists, and I'm over here, not a part of the club, and so I need somebody to bring me in and draw me in and make me a part of this club. Now, as much as I really, I get it, there's a part of me that still bristles against that, right? There's a part of me that says, why can't anybody, why can't I just show up and join? Well, because they want an exclusive, exclusivity, I think is the right word, for their club. They want only a certain kind of people, a certain type, and they want to be able who they admit or not. Now, as a red-blooded American who just does whatever he wants to do, I, there's a, believe me, there's a little part of me that cringes at that, that wants to push back against that a little bit. But I have to play by the rules if I want to be a part of this particular organization. And I am, and I have, and I'm actually very excited to be a part of it. The reason I bring that up here isn't because... I want you all to join Rotary. <laughs> Nothing like that at all. The reason I bring it up here is because when we come to a context like this chapter, this is, chapter is thick with Old Testament ritual, regulation, tradition, and a priesthood. And let's be perfectly honest, even if you grew up Catholic, this kind of priesthood that the Bible talks about is still far, far removed from your own personal experience. This kind of priesthood, if you'll notice here in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest? The priesthood being in existence for our souls implies you are not perfect and if you are going to be admitted presence before the Lord you need to become perfect that's hard first thing though I do want to point out though because our tendency would be to say well nobody's perfect Come on, right? Nobody's perfect. I talked with a guy just, was it last week? It might have been the week before. And he's a brother, but he made a comment that I have had chambered for this particular sermon. Because his comment was, I don't make a mistake very often, but when I do, usually it's a big one. And I looked at him and I said, you don't make a mistake very often. How often do you think you make mistakes? And he said, Man, it, I, it'd be hard-pressed to find one in a week that I make. One in a week? <laughs> what kind of fantasy island are you living on, S.A.? There's no way. There's no way you only make one mistake a, maybe a week. Maybe. There's no way. I'm like, and I told him that. I'm like, come on, dude. There's no way. You sin. You, oh, we'll call them mistakes. Okay, we'll call them indiscretions. Whatever you want to call them, whatever word you want to use, We'll use that word, but you make them all day long. Come on. And then he was kind of hoeing and humming, and even then he didn't want to admit it. But let me be honest with you. I will admit it. I sin royally and regularly, often with frequency, and oftentimes intensity. <laughs> sometimes I mean to do it. Sometimes I don't. But I'm honest, and I'm trying to be honest, but the Bible does say I don't even know what's in my heart, right? Right? 
So even when I'm being honest, there's still a part of me that is subliminally, subconscious, subconsciously holding back even how bad I really am. But perfection is number one, mandatory by God. Number one, perfection is mandatory. The Bible says that we need to be holy. Jesus said we need to be holy even to a higher standard than the scribes and the Pharisees were holy. And those guys were about nothing but pursuing righteousness, pursuing holiness. They were so holy in their own mind and their own rights that they looked down on everybody else in society because they were not holy as they were. And Jesus said, you need to avoid people like that. But he didn't say you shouldn't do what they do. In fact, he went so far as to say, you should do what they do, but don't do what they say. Did I get that backwards? I got it backwards. Do what they say, but don't do what they do because they're hypocrites in their heart. But what they say are right things from the Lord. Because perfection is mandatory. Without holiness, no one will see God. Without perfect righteousness, you will not be admitted into God's heaven. God will not accept you on that last day of judgment if your name is not written in the book of life because your life is one that is spotless and undefiled, completely free from sin. Perfection is mandatory. Number two, perfection is desirable. Now we hear perfection is mandatory, and number one, we kind of bristle at it. Number two, if there's any competitors in the room, we have the tendency to go, I think I got this. It might take me a while. It might take a lot of work. It might take a lot of doing, but I can read these laws and do it. There's a desirability for perfection. It's mandatory and it's desirable. But let me clear the air, lest you think I'm preaching some kind of sinless perfection, which I'm not. We've had here in the church before and we've had to get them out. (laughs) You see, he says here that perfection is attainable through another avenue rather than my own righteousness. You see that? That's the point of verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest who arrived after the order of Melchizedek rather than after the order of Aaron? Do you see the implication? The implication is the Aaronic priesthood through which the law came, right? You read the Old Old Testament. (laughs) You're ready to preach. You read the Old Testament, you read Leviticus, you read Exodus, you read Numbers, you read these passages, and you see all of the old ways and rituals laid out. That's the Levitical priesthood. But the implication here is that couldn't perfect anybody, but there is a priesthood that does perfect people, which is why the first priesthood becomes obsolete, Unnecessary because it was not able to do that which God required. Rather, it pointed forward to the coming priesthood that would do what God requires of each and every one of us. So the point of the Levitical priesthood under which the law came, which we know the law is a good thing, right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, the law is not going to pass away. I didn't come here to abolish the law. I came here to fulfill the law. 
And he goes so far as to say that if anybody gets up and preaches, teaches, preaches the Bible, and they relax one point of the law, then God is going to bring that judgment upon them. Not one jot, not one tittle, not one crossing of a T or dotting of an I is going to pass away from the law until all has been fulfilled. So the first priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was designed by God to be a good thing, an important thing. It showed us our desperate ineptitude and need for somebody to give us the very thing that all of us lack, including those Levitical priests, perfection. Perfection is mandatory and perfection is desirable. So if it's mandatory and it's desirable and we can't get it from the law which God instituted in the Old Testament to point us forward to that need, where do we get it? Right? That's the big question that he's bringing up. And remember the point of the book of Hebrews, right? Jewish Christians living in Rome under persecution struggling with the fact that as Christians, they're enduring a worse persecution than they did when they were Jewish. So now they're going, this sucks. This is hard. I'm not sure if I'm up to this. Lord, is this really right? Some of them are wrestling with this so much that they've abandoned Christianity and gone back to Judaism. And some of them have gone to a mix of Judaism and mysticism, worshiping angels. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them saying, look, buddy, if you go back to that stuff, I know it's hard right now, but if you turn your back on it, you've got nothing else to go to except myths and fables, traditions, none of which offer perfection, which is what God requires. So when we come into the nitty and the gritty of the book of Hebrews, which in my opinion is chapter 7 here that we're in right now through chapter 10, and everything up to this point was introduction, and everything after chapter 10 is kind of wrapping it up in a pretty little bow. But this is the meat of it, because chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all drawing the major contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And those two terms are something we're going to come back to over and over and over and over and over again. Well, not ad nauseum. We'll finish the book someday. But a long time. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And here they're introduced in terms of priesthood. Levitical priesthood, Old Covenant. Melchizedekian priesthood, New Covenant. So, if God requires perfection, and perfection is something that's desirable, and the Levitical priesthood couldn't offer that which you need, where else are you going to go? That's a strong case that the writer of Hebrews is making here. Well, you have to go to another. And you have to go to a priest that arises after the order of Melchizedek rather than one after Aaron. Look at verse 12. To me, I wrote stunning verse. Like, this is a verse that I have read a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of times. But when I'm reading it here just this last week and preparing for the sermon, it like punched me in the gut. It was one of these ones that I had to go, am I reading this right? For where there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Why is that so important? 
Well, because the law is the very thing that everybody that he's writing to based their entire lives on. And so he's saying, if it's true that the Aaronic priesthood couldn't do what it set out to do or what it was attempting to do, not maybe what God intended it to do, but what they were trying to do with it, namely give you perfection, and you need another priesthood to arise in order to offer that perfection, then there's going to necessarily come a change in the law as well. Now, there are many, 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 many good, Bible-believing, well-intentioned, born-again, loving Jesus Christians that look to the old covenant as their righteous standard for how they should live their life. That's not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. Because the law was given to give us God's holy standard, right? It was given to point us to the fact we're not perfect, we need perfection. Perfection wasn't to be found in the law or in the Levitical priesthood, but the law was given to point us to something, someone greater, who would give us the very perfection that we desperately need. So when we go back to that old covenant law and we read those certain laws, so i give you two examples here. One is a Christian, right, who goes back to the old covenant law and they'll read something in there. I encountered somebody this week. Why don't you keep the Sabbath? Why don't I keep the Sabbath? It's one of the big ten, right? That's a big one. That isn't just a ceremonial law. That isn't a grain offering. <laughs> you know, that isn't a sewing pomegranates on the hem of your garment kind of one. That's one of the big ones. Why don't you keep the Sabbath? Well, that's a good question. And so, what did I do? Went to Hebrews chapter 4, which we just did a few weeks ago, to walk through and show why the law, this particular law, the Sabbath keeping, is fulfilled in our observance of allowing Christ to be our Sabbath rest. Meaning, I find my rest in Him. I rest in Him from my works. I don't work or strive any longer for my own righteousness. Whereas the Sabbath day was given to us to point out that we need a rest. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was meant, created by God for me to understand my need is rest. And Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us that our rest is in Christ. And so how we do fulfill the law of keeping Sabbath is not by one particular day where we set aside and worship, but rather my entire life is lived as one of rest in Christ Jesus. I don't work for my own righteousness, I rest in him. He and he alone is my righteousness now. Second thing that I would point out is that that's a Christian, that there are a lot of non-Christians who when they come and they talk to us about certain things about the Bible, a lot of people, especially in the last few years, probably because of some things that have been popularized on TV and social media, will immediately go to the law and be like, oh really, you're a Christian, well do you eat selfish? Do you wear polyester? Do you got tattoos? Do you, do you, do you, do you, right? 
And they'll go back to the Old Covenant. They'll go back to the Old Testament law. And they'll bring up these things out of the Old Covenant to try to show us that we're living inconsistently with the Bible. When in fact it's real simple. Christ fulfilled all of that for us. Christ is the fulfillment of that. Yeah, I eat shellfish and I love it. And I will continue to eat it because Mark chapter 7 teaches us that Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Acts tells us that when the sheet was dropped down for Peter, he was told to rise, kill, and eat the food that was in there. And it was full of unclean animals. And in doing that, all food was cleansed as well. But the greater point was that now Gentiles were being admitted into the covenant there in that passage. But the point is, is that when the new covenant comes in, the old covenant is not obsolete, but what it was designed to do is fulfilled. It was a shadow of that which is greater, right? So I'm standing up here and I'm casting a shadow because that spotlight is right there up above me. It's kind of faint, but I can see it. But people who are fuddling around with the Old Testament law are fuddling around down there in my shadow when the real is right here, right? How weird would it be if Charlotte were here to come up here and start trying to hug on that shadow, right? We all would be like, what are you doing, kid? (laughs) Hey, Pat, is your your granddaughter okay? What's going on there, right? You know she's not going to do that. What's she going to do? She's going to come running up here, sometimes in the middle of the sermon, and I'm going to pick her up and I'm going to hold her and I'm going to give her a little kiss on the cheek and I'm going to send her back to her mama, right? Because she wants the real. She doesn't need the shadow. That's the law. The law was a shadow pointing us to the reality. It was valid for what it was designed to do, but when the true comes in, namely Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the old was now no longer necessary. So verse 12, boom! When there is a change in priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. So now we read the Old Testament through the lens, if you will, of the New Testament, right? It's I put on my New Testament glasses when I read the Old Testament and it gives me so much greater clarity and depth and purpose and value. I read that Old Testament and now I'm no longer like twisted and knots going, oh man, should I go collect sticks? It's Saturday, I don't know. Dude died, am I going to die? No. I'm no longer bound up by that kind of bondage anymore because I know it's been fulfilled in Christ. My Sabbath rest isn't on a day, it's in him. I can read the Old Testament through the new because the new is the fulfillment of the old. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe of which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Okay. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, right? He's a descendant of King David himself. He had every right to sit upon that throne. He had the legal right to be king of Israel. In fact, you'll notice in Acts chapter 2, the very first gospel message that's preached isn't 
Come down the aisle, raise your hand high, pray this prayer. It's Jesus is King David. How dare you not submit to him? Wow. 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 That's not the usual way we preach the gospel. But it's the way Peter did, man. He didn't hold anything back. He said, Jesus is king of Israel. You killed your king. What are you going to do about it? And remember, their response was like, what should we do? (laughs) I'm not sure what we should do because I'm kind of freaked out about all this. And Peter said, repent of your sins and be baptized, each one of you, into the name of Jesus Christ, right? That's the whole end of that sermon. And that day, a whole bunch of thousands of people come to the Lord and know Jesus Christ. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, but not just king of Israel, king of the world, right? Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, right? Revelation chapter 19 says he has that written upon his thigh. He is the king. But yet we talked a little bit about it last week. No king from any tribe ever served as priest. Remember I said it was Hezekiah. I was wrong. It was Uriah. And I went back and and looked it up and made sure I was right. But no, I was wrong last week. So there you go. Uzziah, no, Uriah, no. Now I got it wrong too. Ah! <laughs> Take where, be careful if you boast. Be careful if you boast because you're about to fall. And I just think I misnamed him again. Now it went out of my head. Thank you, Jesus. Anyways, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. No king ever served as priest. And the one that did, that now I can't remember his name again, got leprosy because of the curse of God upon him for trying to serve as priest. Well, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So Jesus is not of the tribe of Aaron, so how can he be a priest? Especially a high priest. How can he be one who's the priest? He isn't priest on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, right? Verse 16. Because you know the tribe of Aaron, they became priests simply because they were born a Levite, right? I am born a Mathers. I'm, that's how I'm born. I can want to be a Boone as much as I can want to be. I could change my name to Boone if I wanted to, but that doesn't make me a Boone, right? I'm always going to be a Mathers. So, legal requirement concerning bodily descent, if I was in the lineage of Levi and in that tribe where Aaron came from, I would have a legal right to become a priest. Nobody else did, Right? Nobody from Asher could be it. Nobody from Benjamin could be it. Nobody from Judah, specifically the tribe where Jesus came from, could do it. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. But the glorious thing, the better thing, the most exciting thing about this passage, I think, is that Jesus' priesthood is not dependent upon his ancestry. It's rather dependent upon his indestructible life. That when he died upon the cross, he gave up his self willingly. That when he was buried for those three days, he willingly laid in that grave. Because death had no power over him. He was in the same form and likeness as we are. He was in all points tempted, yet without sin. So he's a perfect man, and yet 
he never committed any sin. And the wages of sin is what, beloved? Death. And if Jesus never sinned, death has no hold on him. And so it required Jesus willingly giving up of himself in order to die. So his priesthood comes through the power of his own indestructible life, meaning that he has power and authority over sin, over death itself, because he has never sinned. The weight of sin that he bore on the cross was the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Perfection is mandatory. Perfection is desirable. Perfection comes through Christ because God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had committed all of my sins that I have ever committed in my life, I am committing right now, and I will ever commit. God punished Jesus and treated him as if he was me so that he could treat me as if I lived Christ's perfect life, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become perfect, because it's mandatory, because it's desirable, because we desperately need the righteousness of God. Oh, we need it. But beloved, let me tell you the best news you could ever hear in your entire life is this perfection that you need because God demands it that we need because it's desirable is freely given to us by faith in Jesus Christ and there's nothing we can do to earn it. That perfection comes when we just trust. That's why Sabbath is so important, meaning our rest in Christ. I rest in him because I'm acknowledging I can't do it. Jesus, I can't do it. This is why people who strive for holiness, and you've met these people, and God bless them, there's probably a lot of them that are saved, but you've met them. They're just doing all the right things. They're wearing the right clothes. They got their hair the right way. They got all the right stuff. They got the right van that they're driving or whatever it is. But they've got all of their things in a row. I find those people to be the least gracious. The least understanding the most desiring to have gathered around them people exactly like themselves and becoming very uncomfortable when somebody comes around them who is sinful and is messy and is really trying to just say, I love Jesus and I want to live the way he wants me to. Beloved, we got to, we've got to, we've got to be real about our sin. Because if we're not, we're not going to be gracious people. Beloved, if we have received so much grace from the Lord, then we should be the most gracious people in the world. The most willing to extend forgiveness, to extend love, to not be bitter towards one another, but just to say, look, I am here with you. You've sinned? All right, let's move on. Trust Jesus and let's keep trucking along together. You sin again? All right, I'll pick you up. You sin again? Okay, let's go. How many times should I keep doing that, Pat? Jesus thinks a long time. He said 70 times 7. Being a Christian is messy. It should be. 
this, oddly enough, should be the safest, the best place to be who you really are. The Christian is the one above all people that should be able to be the freest to be who they really are. And yet, unfortunately, in the church at large, and hopefully not here, but I got to think sometimes we do it here too, is that we put on a mask and we put on a face and we try to be what everybody else thinks that we ought to be. I know I've been guilty of it, and I, I, I've had to go to a bunch of you and ask for forgiveness for things that I've done throughout the years. Because I still sin, because I want us to be a people who truly understand grace. Because we've received it from the Lord, we've received it from other people, and we're willing to extend it to everybody else around us. Grace, 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 grace. This is why this is so important. Because what the Bible is saying here in the book of Hebrews is that if you Christians go to anything else, you have no longer any sway by grace. You no longer have as your rudder guiding you grace. You now inevitably have some kind of works. You need Jesus. He's the only one with an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. Two things here. As we close. One, the former commandment, the Aaronic priesthood, the law. Notice He says three things about it. Number one, he says it's set aside. Now, I I wonder at this point, and in chapter 9, if the temple is still standing when he wrote this book. I kind of think it is, probably, because he says it's set aside, but he doesn't say it's completely destroyed, you know? It seems like if the temple had been destroyed, this would be a good place to point that out. So I'm kind of thinking it's, this is probably written before 70 AD, which is only for you Bible geeks. Nobody else really, doesn't really matter too much. <laughs> but it's been set aside. Why? Why would God set aside the very law he instituted? And he gives two reasons. One, because it was weak and useless. Wow, useless? What was useless in this sense, and notice he puts parentheses around it so that we understand, for the law made nothing perfect, meaning it was weak and it was useless in terms of getting you right with God, in getting you righteousness, in getting you to the place of perfection, which is what is mandatory and what is desirable. The former commandment couldn't do that. All it could do was point you towards the place where you could find perfection, which is why he ends the passage like this. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope is introduced for this is how we draw near to God. In Luke chapter 10, I'll start in verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, Father, thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, because such was your gracious will. 
All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. And then here's our passage. Then he turned to the disciples and he said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see, to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Beloved, this passage is written to us as well. Blessed are you who have seen these things because there was all of these people that lived in this part of the book that didn't see these things. But God has seen fit to reveal them to us. So beloved, we have a better hope. A hope that gives perfection. A hope that gives what is desirable. A hope that does what the old covenant couldn't do. And I, for one, could not be more grateful and thankful. Grace is the greatest thing that there is. And I thank our Father in heaven that he did not leave us under the law but rather gave us his son, Jesus Christ, because in him and in him alone do we have the perfection that's mandatory, the perfection that's desirable, and the grace that we need for life. Amen? Father God, we love you because you first loved us. We ask that you would take these truths that we find here in our scripture, especially tonight, especially such a powerful passage like this, and that you would lead us right around from the law, from self-centeredness, from our own righteousness, into just trusting you and falling back and falling into your grace, your mercy, your love, your compassion, your heart, Lord. Lord, we do love you so deeply and greatly. And may the gospel be the very thing that just enlivens us for righteousness. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray.